Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. No change without struggle, no one in power. W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Noor. On the 3rd of July, Israel launched a large-scale air and ground military aggression against the Jenin refugee camp, cutting off thousands of Palestinians, killing at least 12 Palestinians, injuring more than 100, some say many more than 100, some of them in critical condition and including children. The Israeli army destroyed more than 250 homes and the entire infrastructure in the camp. This is not the first time that is the Israeli military is doing that. Uh, there was a similar action in 2002. We have two guests with us today to discuss that and um, the situation generally currently in the still occupied territories. Our, our first guest is Hueda Araf. She's a Palestinian-American attorney, human rights activist. Over the past two decades, she has been involved in a number of legal and grassroots initiatives for Palestinian rights. In 2001, she co-founded the International Solidarity Movement, a Palestinian-led non-violent resistance movement, which has twice been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Also with us from Haifa, Israel, is Vera Sajrawi, a Palestinian journalist and uh, writer at Plus972 magazine. And thank you both very much for joining us today. Vera, um, we have you for only the first half hour. Can you please describe what happened in Janine? Thank you for having me, Esti. Uh, what happened was uh, a surprise. Um, actually, overnight, we woke up uh, in the early morning hours of uh, Monday, not this last Monday, the one before, and um, we were surprised to see that the Israeli military has decided to launch a full-on operation uh, into the one kilometer uh, um, uh, refugee camp. So the size of the, when we say a refugee camp, it's not huge. It's literally one main street with um, over a thousand structures. And those structures can have uh, up to three or four houses or even more. Um, it's a very heavily populated uh, piece of land. Um, so seeing Israeli tanks um, invade that small camp raised, raised huge concern, huge concern about the um, um, loss of life that might follow these scenes. Um, and that proved to be right. Yeah, so so the attack was um, both on land and from the air. What what um, describe to us what what it was like? Which of course you weren't there. The Israeli army did not let any journalists in there. But what have you heard and what have you seen afterwards? I've heard from people on the ground who I interviewed uh, during uh, uh, reporting on the uh, assault um, that the constant, the, the most annoying thing was the constant buzzing of airplanes and drones. Uh, 
Israel used killer drones. These are drones that can um, get very close to the target and um, fire um, um, tear gas canisters, uh, bombs, even shoot. Um, so this is the scariest uh, uh, new um, advanced technology that Israel uses in war um, now. Uh, also, the fact that they use the Apache with the Apache airplane, which they didn't use since 2002, quickly brought back the traumatic memories that camp suffered from, and and survivors of that massacre. Uh, suffer from and even watching from far it brought back very very traumatic memory even for me uh, as a Palestinian who lives far away I was a teenager in 2002 and I witnessed um, the first massacre I can remember in in, in Palestine um, also the 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 big trucks and uh, and and um, military tanks driving into the one main street I just told you about and causing like an imaginable destruction. The Jenin municipality announced that 80% of the houses suffered complete or partial damage and the water and electricity and sewage uh, networks suffered 90% damage. So you can imagine. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the number of um, deaths and injuries. I don't know if more people have died since from the injuries since the initial 12. And um, as I said, there are more than 100 people who were injured. But I think in your reporting, you say more than 250. What, what do we know? So the way the number differs all, always, even in Gaza, is the way, what do we consider an injury? An injury? Is suffocation by tear gas enough uh -huh. to be counted as, a, as a, an injury? I think it is, because I suffocated from tear gas, and I can tell you, it, you almost feel like you're going to die. Uh, yeah. Is uh, falling while you're running away from the shilling and hurting your limbs considered a direct injury or not? So different bodies have different ways of looking at injuries. So I know, for example, the UN has its special set of categories to consider an injury as a direct uh, injury of the of the attack, and the Palestinian Health Ministry has different categories. So that's how you, that's why the numbers differ. Uh, and the death toll still stands at uh, 12 uh, people. Uh, but we also know that a lot of people are still in hospitals. Some of them are in critical conditions and might die months or years down the road. Yeah, yeah. And um, that part about the tanks tearing the streets, tearing the infrastructure, as I understand um, that they told the streets prevented ambulances from arriving at people that may have been saved otherwise. And also um, that means that now that whole area doesn't have water and I think electricity too. And um, that's, that feels like a death sentence all by itself. What tell us about that and um, what's going on currently? Is it something that can be fixed pretty quickly? Or if not, what does that mean for the people who live there? Absolutely. Right now we're uh, experiencing an unusual heat wave that is mm -hmm. hitting the Middle East. Uh, and I can't even imagine what people are going through without water and electricity. I spoke to volunteers, uh, students, individuals, uh, collectives, organizations that uh, mobilized after the attack started uh, and uh, took the 3,000 people that were kicked out of uh, 
of their houses to allow the military to uh, even go deeper, invade deeper into the camp. And up until now, there are still, you find families, all members staying in uh, houses of people that donated um you know, apartments, even um, uh, rooms at uh, at hotels. So not everybody's back because you have houses that are fully destroyed or partially destroyed. And when I say partially destroyed, you, it means like the house is missing and there is this uh, Israeli military tactic where instead of going to fight, um, walking in the street, they... And, and the, when I say refugee camp, it's literally like, uh, I want to describe it as Lego. Uh, it's really, the, the, the two houses share, uh, share the same um, uh, wall. So you and your neighbor share the same wall. Uh, so what the military does, they open a hole from one house to the other and walk or advance through the houses and wreak havoc on everything. Um, I saw a BBC report uh, where the uh, uh, it showed uh, that uh, um, the damage was unnecessary to the uh, closet, uh, you know, throwing kitchen supplies on the ground, throwing clothes of the kids on the ground, uh, destroying everything. So, so even if it's partially destroyed, it doesn't mean that you can live in it or you have the basic needs as a human being, especially in that heat wave, to survive. Um, also, the 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 sick, uh, anyone with diabetes, with uh, any like uh, chronic condition, cannot go back. So people are still at hospitals. Um, there you can uh, stay in a uh, um, conditioned area with air conditioning. You can have meals. You can have your your uh, health care. Um, and as we know, the Palestinian Authority is already suffering from severe financial struggles. So even when they promise aid, as we saw when President Mahmoud Abbas came to visit the camp a couple of days ago, even when they promise aid, the aid is very late to uh, be delivered. Uh, so not everybody's back. Uh, I know about a lot of initiatives that the rubble is still on the ground despite municipality effort and volunteers trying to remove it. It's very hard to remove it uh, because of the um, uh, the narrow um, uh, alleys and the and the and the difficulties of clearing the rubble. Yeah, and that's what I'm wondering about is with the PA, the Palestinian Authority, um, being so depleted itself, how will the infrastructure uh, be rebuilt? How long will it take? What, what would it take for it to happen? I mean, we have seen it in Gaza after yeah. the destruction it takes years and years to rebuild. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, time for aid uh, to come in, even from international organizations the, like the EU and the UN. Uh, it takes a lot of effort. Uh, Israel makes life miserable. As you know, Jenin is in the West Bank uh, under the Israeli occupation, and Israel controls uh, all uh, entry points, all cross points into the West Bank. So every little um, supply is controlled by Israel. And um, there is um, racism factored in and the fact that it's uh, uh, an apartheid uh, regime. Um, Jenin is not accessible even when you want to bring in aid it is very hard. You have to cross many hurdles, which delays the aid from arriving. And it could take up to years and years to rebuild. Uh, and as soon as, as we saw in Gaza, as soon as, uh, as it's 
rebuilt, it's at the risk of another attack, another invasion, another destruction. Yeah, and um, like we mentioned earlier, um, journalists were not allowed in. I don't know if they are allowed now, but but explain what happened there, because journalists, of course, did come to Janine and tried to um, describe accurately what was going on. Absolutely. Any journalist who is devoted uh, to um, this profession uh, felt the need to go and cover because we were facing another possible massacre like 2002. Um, especially Palestinian journalists who are connected emotionally to their people and their struggle. So I spoke to my uh, Palestinian colleagues and some of them were in tears for not being able to go in um, uh, the first day of the invasion uh, we know of five journalists who took the risk and took it on their own uh, responsibility to go into the camp because a lot of international media uh, instructed their journalists not to go in fearing that it might be too risky. And they were right. As soon as this uh, group of five Palestinian journalists went inside the camp, they were shot at directly. Videos came out showing a Palestinian military vehicle stopping across the street from the camera crew uh, with the camera on the tripod and uh, something we call live view that uh, transmits uh, live uh, coverage from uh, uh, the field. And they started shooting at the camera, the tripod. The journalists took cover inside one of the near houses and they were blockaded in there for two hours until uh, an ambulance, a Palestinian ambulance evacuated them. So. In doing that, the Palestinian, the Israeli military, I'm sorry, uh, sent a clear message to all Palestinian journalists or any journalist that thinks about going inside the camp that they should not do that. It's a matter of life or death. Um, I know that uh, all international media stayed uh, in the out, on the outskirts of the camp. Uh, on rooftops overlooking the camp uh, and most journalists also went to the hospital where the the killed and the injured arrived and they tried to speak to people there and ask them to describe what's going on inside the camp because for up to um, I want to say 48 hours we had no idea what's happening inside the camp um, mm. We just heard the shots and the bombs and the shelling, which was horrifying in itself, because you start imagining the number of, of death, of killed and destruction, and you kind of panic about the possibility of another massacre without being able to witness it and report it on or report on it. Yeah, and it's it's just a little over a year since Israel um, Israeli soldiers killed Shirin Abu Akleh, which uh, made international news because uh, she is she's Palestinian American, and um, because she was um, famous enough, I suppose. Uh, Israel, of course, denied that um, one of its soldiers. Um, killed her, but um, here they are doing it all over again. Yeah, and Shirin wasn't just famous. Shirin was one of the best reporters that we grew up watching covering the Second Intifada. Uh, mm. She was known by name by almost every Palestinian adult uh, because her coverage was... Um, unique and um, um, I want to remind listeners that Shirin was killed in Jenin refugee camp. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So to see another attack on journalists in the same place was terrifying, was terrifying. I was sitting in Haifa and I was shaking, um, let alone those who were on the ground, hearing the shelling, seeing the video of the shooting at the uh, camera, uh, 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 at the gear of the uh, crew. Um, it was all unreal. And uh, I want to also remind you that the Israelis later confessed that Shirin was killed by one of their soldiers, but never admitted fault, uh, uh, pretending that it was uh, uh, unintentional. An yeah. 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 Well, um, Vera, I know we need to let you go very soon. So let me ask you, um, Israel says that it went into Jenin yet again because it is a center of terrorism. Um, I want you to respond to this claim. Um, what what makes Jenin unique to the Israeli government, and um, is it is it the center of terrorism? Oh wow! I need thirty <laughs> hours to respond to that, but I'll try. Yes. to <laughs> I'll try <laughs> to be brief. So. The, 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 a universal law is for every action, there is a reaction. So Israel comes and occupies and oppresses and controls and builds apartheid walls and deprives people of their basic needs of, of education and work and a dignified life and then complains about reaction. I'm not justifying what uh, the fighters, the Palestinian fighters are doing. I'm not advocating for violence, but I'm just saying, let's take a moment and put ourselves in their shoes. Again, this is one of the most dense areas I've ever been to. Uh, the, and, and let's remind listeners um, where these Palestinians who live in refugee camp came from. So in the Nakba in 1948, when uh, uh, Zionist militias occupied Palestine, they kicked out people of their houses and their lands uh, at gunpoint and I, I don't have the exact number, but the vast majority of the refugees in Jenin are from Haifa. And they have never seen the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. They, some of them were born and raised and never left the West Bank. And most fighters who fight today lost their parents in the massacre in 2002. Some of them never saw their fathers who are jailed in Israeli prisons. So for us to sit on the outside and say that they're terrorists, I cannot justify that. Um, I see that the hypocrisy in covering Ukraine, where a Ukrainian right. is praised for uh, defending their lands, while Palestinians who are not Europeans, who are not white, are called terrorists. Yeah, yeah. And just to clarify, uh, Haifa is on the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, what you were saying is that a lot of the people in the camp uh, never saw, basically, the sea that, they, that their parents come from. Well... Uh, Vera Sajrawi, Palestinian journalist based in uh, Haifa and a writer at Plus972 magazine. <laughs> Thank you so much for, um, excuse me, thank you so much for uh, joining us on, on Friday evening, your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And uh, we are still here with Huweida Araf, a Palestinian-American attorney and human rights 
activist and um, thank you Hueda for being with us. Uh, I'm sure everything that you heard from uh, Vera was very familiar. Do you want to comment on, on anything before I ask you more questions? Sure, yes. Thank you for having me, Esti, and for covering these very important issues that don't get accurate coverage in American mainstream media. And I think Americans really need to know because we are complicit, because it's our tax dollars that allow what Vera was describing. They allow the Israeli military to do what it's doing. Everything that Vera described in terms of the attacks, just for people to remember, we're talking about a refugee camp. And, and she did talk about that these people were kicked out of their original homes. And that camp was built in 1953 to, to house all of the refugees that Israel kicked out of their original homes. That camp is less than a fifth of a square mile. It's 0.16 of a square mile and houses 14,000 refugees. That's how dense it is when Israel was rolling through and bombing with their drones and their Apache helicopters. And, and so when Vera was talking about the, the fear and the destruction, this is a, a small, tightly packed refugee camp of people that have been traumatized over and over again. And now you have one of the most powerful militaries in the world attacking by land and air. It is, imagine being a, a parent there, uh, how how do you keep your kids safe? How do you tell them that they're going to be okay? It is um, much more than I think words can do justice to and that people can imagine. And in saying all this, we as Americans and listeners have a role to play in letting our legislators know that we do not support this because one of the most, as disturbing as everything in the attacks and the injuries and the deaths were, What's most infuriating is seeing the headlines with the White House saying we support, quote, we support Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, right. Ever a distortion. Yeah. So I want to I want to get back um, eventually to what Americans can and um, should be doing. But uh, we were just talking about. um about um, Israel claiming that um, it, it was fighting a uh, nest of terrorism. I um, yesterday uh, in, participated um, or joined in a, um, a webinar by Stop the Jewish National Fund, which is a British um, organization and they started with a two and a half minute video which was a compilation of various videos of uh, settler and social and soldier violence in uh, recent years uh, attacking families killing children burning homes burning communities fields uh, disturbing um, the flocks of the Bedouins in the Hebron area I mean, it's been described and pogroms, and I must say it's exactly what I have learned about as a child about pogroms of Jews. Um, I think that um, what I saw, I think, is terrorism. Yes, what, you're. Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say you're you're absolutely correct in that we you have these um, very fanatic, rabid settlers uh, occupying various parts of the occupied West Bank and sitting, you know, on these hilltops where their communities, their settlements have been built on land that's confiscated from Palestinians. And so, not only are Palestinians denied you know access to their resources to their water to their lands because israel has confiscated them to build a to build colonies for jews only but then you have um elements uh, and very fanatic and settlers with this um, ethno-religious supremacy ideology that 
are really accountable to no one and that go on these rampages, burning Palestinian uh, land and, and olive trees, the source of their livelihoods, they're killing their flocks, again, sources of their livelihoods that Palestinian farmers use to survive, to feed their families, burning houses and cars, uh, sometimes with people in them beating and killing Palestinians. And Palestinians have no security because the Palestinian Authority is not allowed to interfere. Uh, they they cannot, and even if they were with the, what weapons they have, there are absolutely no match for them. The Israeli military that comes in and serves not to protect the Palestinians which are being attacked, but to protect the settlers doing the attacking. And then you have reports that the military sometimes participates in the attack. So not only do they do nothing to protect the Palestinian civilians, they either stand by to protect the settlers or just watch or even participate in the attacks. And there have been uh, dozens, if not hundreds of these, just in, in June alone, over 80 of these kinds of attacks reported and they're ongoing and there is no accountability. You, uh, you know, we say, and it's true that Israel is one of the most right-wing governments now, mm-hmm. but it also would be a mistake to say that this has only been happening since Israel's right-wing government. But um, what you do have now is Israeli ministers participating or, or egging on these kinds of attacks with, the, with their statements, their statements that uh, Palestinian villages and communities need to be wiped out. And, uh, and then when, you know, the, these settlers go on their rampages, on their pogroms, you see them being congratulated by Israeli ministers and no accountability. So... Yeah. The Palestinians are either being attacked by these, you know, rabid settlers um, or by the, the military, by, you know, air and land. And who do they go to We're, for, for any kind of protection or for any kind of accountability? We try to appeal to the governments that are, are enabling this with their silence or with their active funding or with their, uh, you know, uh, diplomatic protections. Uh, we try to, we have cases in front of the International Criminal Court, but that is also a very politicized body, unfortunately, which is taking years in, in order to do the investigation for which there are voluminous uh, records. Uh, and so it remains that Palestinians um, are, are occupied, are living under a very violent apartheid system and have absolutely no protection. And as Vera was saying before, then when some people in refugee camps or in these, you know, ghettos that are so oppressed, uh, try to arm themselves or try to fight back in any way, they are terrorists. And that just goes to Israel's justification of, of fighting terror. And unfortunately, that's what's repeated by uh, a lot of the media that aren't as, you know, principled and in-depth as, as you are. SD, and it leaves a lot of people kind of confused about what's going on instead of seeing it as a very, uh, very clear issue of, of apartheid colonialism and oppression that is a crime against humanity and needs to be acted on by everybody that, claim, that claims to care about human rights and human dignity. Yeah, and um, I would like to invite uh, listeners to call in if they have uh, a relevant question or comment. The number here is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media, at Work Talk on Twitter, or a public affair on Facebook. And uh, whether there are so many things to talk about and only 20 minutes left, Um Let's talk just briefly about Gaza 2, um, which was attacked, I think, a couple of days after Israel withdrew from Janine, which, be, which is being attacked um, all the time and in big ways about every other week. Um, just, just remind us what's going on there, too. Yes, of course, um, because Gaza does need so much more attention than it gets. And just to remind your listeners, Gaza is a small strip of land. It's it's a little bit bigger than the size of, of Madison and Wisconsin. It's, 
and 2 million people are trapped there, meaning they cannot leave the confines of the Gaza Strip, whether they need medical attention, education, going to visit family in the West Bank, they need special permission from the Israeli military, and more often than not, it's denied. And everything that comes in, not only people, and goes out of Gaza is controlled by Israel. So that includes the food that is coming in from, for example, the United Nations, about 70% of the 2 million people that live, that are trapped in Gaza, are also refugees. Uh, over half of them, over half of the population of Gaza are children. And the refugees are, are tended to by a, a UN refugee program, and they bring in food and other, um, uh, and other supplies, and that is controlled by Israel, what they are allowed to bring in and how much they are allowed to bring in, and also what goes out. So Gaza's economy is very much dependent on Israel, and it has been destroyed because bringing in raw material so you can produce if you're able to. Uh, and then when you produce, you need to export, but then you need to go through uh, Israel also to export. And Israel denies a lot. For example, when I was in Gaza, they have some of the best strawberries I've ever tasted in my life. But are they mm -hmm. able to export them? Carnations are also big, but all of the hurdles that Israel puts in Gaza to be able to export, you know, their flowers or their produce will be dead. And so the economy is very much dependent on Israel and uh, and not to mention just the human dignity of being able to to leave. If you have a scholarship to study abroad, you can pretty much forget about it. If you need a um, one of the actions I was involved in many years ago, we were able to take out of Gaza a young man who had his leg amputated as a result of an Israeli assault. And Israel was not letting him leave the Gaza Strip to get a prosthetic leg. Uh, we were able to get him out, but that's the, the kind of thing. A lot of medical um, attention, a lot of uh, medical procedures aren't available in Gaza because Israel also denies the medical equipment to come in, for example, for cancer treatment or sometimes just surgical equipment. Uh, and then so therefore you Palestinians often need to seek medical attention uh, either inside Israel or in other areas of Palestine, the West Bank or abroad. And as I mentioned, Israel denies these permissions. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, on top of that, you have Israel attacking by air, sea, and land. And they did bomb on, I think as well, on July 5th after they pulled out of Gaza. I it didn't see any reported casualties there, but just in May, they had launched an assault where they killed at least 33 people four of them children, wounded at least 190, 64 of them children. I mean, they killed a whole family in their sleep, uh, destroyed nearly, uh, I mean, over 100 homes, 103 homes, I believe, and, and damaged nearly 3,000 other homes. Again, this is adding to the trauma. And when you think about everything that Israel has been doing to this small strip of land that has been called an open-air prison, or a, a concentration camp, if you think of the conditions that our people are, are living in, uh, on top of that, add these uh, bombardments by Israel. It is unlivable. It is traumatic. You have over 70% of the population of Gaza that is food aid dependent, not because they want to be, not even because they're refugees, but because Israel does not allow them to, to develop, to work. Um, just for example, you have... Uh, fishers, people that fish, that, deny, that rely on the fish to feed their families. Well, Israel limits how they're only allowed to go out about three nautical miles. And if they go further than that, and just last week, Israel uh, attacked fishers, um, people that tried to go beyond three miles just to get more fish. Uh, and so not only is the fish limited, but because Israel denies the Palestinians in Gaza from importing what they need to tend to their uh, fixer sewage system, they are dumping over 100 million liters of untreated sewage into the Mediterranean every single day. So these fishers are fishing in polluted waters because they aren't allowed to go out any further. Uh, and I could go on and on, but they, yeah, it is, it is really unlivable. Um, 
and and yet these people are surviving kind of waiting on the international community to do something and the only time you hear about gaza is if you know some people uh, fire a homemade rocket out of gaza uh, and then suddenly they're terrorists and israel goes in and bombs them and we um, like to tell ourselves that that is justified it it's a yeah and and we have um we have two callers and and the first one i think actually wants to talk about um, the way um, Israelis and Palestinians are portrayed. Um, let's go to Judith. Hi, Judith, you're on the air. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Um, Thanks for calling. Hi, I'm having problems turning off the app. Uh, Mort, I hope you can hear me okay. Um, yes. So yes, I'm very concerned. Uh, I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace and um, Jewish myself. Um, and I am very concerned when I read the paper. I'm so hor- horrified by you know the way they do not talk about the fact that they're killing civilians. Um, just and that that um, of course Ukraine is considered you know such a virtuous uh, battle. Um, also, the fact that U.S. funds the Israeli military, and what can we do? Yeah. Can you hear me? Thanks. Um, Hueda, so two, two questions here. Uh, the way... Um, the way this uh, conflict, if, if that's the right word, is, is portrayed, and then what can we do? Yes, I think that... Uh, the talking about it so we're educating others is extremely important because you know if they're not listening to programs like yours or reading alternative news sources they are not getting a, a correct information so uh educating people and then you want to move people into action and it could be a simple one it could be as simple as a phone call to your representative um because what is happening is that our representatives our members of congress are the ones that are um sending, appropriating this money to go to Israel. And every time Israel asks for more, they're, you know, approving it or having it sail through. And then when, um, for example, just last week, the Biden administration reversed something that the Trump administration had done. The Trump administration had allowed U.S. aid to go to uh, research in settlements. Settlements are illegal under international law. They are actually a war crime. And therefore, so when Trump said that U.S. money can go to research in these settlements at these universities, he was actually contributing U.S. money to, to war crimes. Biden uh, reversed that just last week, said no more U.S. money to go to these settlements. But you already have uh, a Senate letter that is going to the president now opposing this. So you have our members of Congress that are constantly, um, because they don't hear from us enough and they only hear from the pro-Israel lobby uh, and the pro-Israel lobby puts a lot of money behind a lot of our, our representatives when they're you know, in their electoral campaigns and otherwise, they need to know that more of us disapprove. We know what's happening and we oppose it. So a Jewish Voice for Peace does a, a great job um, there Jewish, in sending out alerts to their members, just send a letter or pick up the phone and they'll give you talking points to let you know what's going on and, and to just let your member of Congress know. And if you can tell other people to do that, the more our representatives hear from us, the more um, you know, we will push them to change, uh, to change policy, which is what we need to do, change policy. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, let's get to Susan next. Hi, Susan, you're on the air. Well, um, good afternoon, everybody. And um, I think you just covered what I I was going to share. And I um, thank you so much for this important information. I had also wanted to let the community know about Jewish Voice for Peace, both the national organization and the Madison chapter as resources for advocating with others for justice in Israel, Palestine, and the United States. So. Thank you so much for the show and the important work. Take care, everybody. Okay, thank you, Susan. Um, so by way of um, Congress, there is a bill that was written by uh, Betty McCollum. What can you tell us about that, Hueda? 
Yes, this is, I think, the third or the fourth time that Betty McCollum introduces this bill. And it is designed to ensure that U.S. taxpayer dollars do not go to, um, to abusing, uh, torturing, and imprisoning Palestinian children. Uh, about 700 Palestinian children per year are put through the Israeli military court system. That is a court system that does not have even basic due process rights. You can look at Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. They've written reports to say the Israeli military court system does not guarantee uh, basic due process. But that is the system that is applied towards Palestinians because there's a two-tiered legal system. And, uh, and they put children through that system. So they are these soldiers would go into Palestinian homes, usually in the middle of the night, take kids from their beds in their pajamas sometimes at gunpoint. They're not allowed to have a lawyer. They're not allowed to have their uh, families come with them. They interrogate them and abuse them and, uh, and imprison them for varying amounts of time. Betty McCollum's bill says no U.S. aid to Israel because we give Israel at least $3.8 billion tax dollars per year it says we have to guarantee that no U.S. money is going to abusing children in this way. What is horrifying about this is that over in all of the times that Betty McCollum has introduced this bill, it has not managed to get enough signatures to get out of committee. So um, right now, I'm not sure we may be close to 30 signatures, but we have 435 members of the House of Representatives. To only have 30 people signed on to a bill that says no U.S. tax dollars should go to abusing and, and torturing and imprisoning children should be a no-brainer. But because it's Palestinian children, you, you, you have only 30 people signed on. So if listeners want to do something, calling your members of Congress and asking them to sign on to Betty McCollum's bill, which is called Defending the Human Rights of Palestinian Children and Families Living Under Israeli Military Occupation. Um, I don't know if I can get the bill number for you, but uh, uh, I can try to find it before this show ends if they want to refer specifically to the bill. But definitely demanding that yeah. dollars aren't used for these abuses. Thank you. And um, I believe that Mark Pocan is actually one of these 30 signatories, but um, it still is worth co uh, contacting He, Mark, of course, has uh, visited the West Bank and, and has done a, um, a, a town hall after that. A lot of people were there. He tried to get into Gaza and the Israelis didn't let him. I mean, here he is, an American... Uh, Congress member who is not allowed by Israel to go into Gaza. Uh, Tammy Baldwin, of course, has uh, visited Israel and um, was lavished with all kinds of um, um, Israeli uh, goodies and um, propaganda. And uh, she certainly needs to... Um, hear from us. And then, of course, we have Ron Johnson, who is probably an absolutely lost cause, but um, I think he should hear from us um, too. Um, Hueda, we have um, only five minutes left, and um, I want to talk about you a little bit, um, because you yourself were targeted recently in your hometown. Can you tell people what happened? And, and I ask you to talk about that because, of course, you're not the only one. I think it's very important for people here to understand what happens to a lot of people in the United States who are trying to speak um, to tell the truth about what's going on in uh, Palestine. Yes, sure. Before that, let me just say it's House Resolution 3103-3103. Uh, that's the bill number. Thank and, you. Yeah, yes. Even if it, Representative Pocan is great, um, it doesn't hurt to to thank him. So sometimes also being thanked for doing the right thing is yes. great. Uh, what happened to me is I was invited by a, some student organizers to speak at about on a panel about uh, racism and discrimination. And I, uh, they contacted me because they liked the work that I had done on Palestine and, and Palestinian human rights. And so I was one of uh, five speakers that spoke at an assembly to high school students. And I 
well, for seven minutes, you know, to each grade, I talked about my experience, why my parents came to the United States growing up here. And then I spoke about going to, to the occupied Palestinian territories and working with people of all kinds of, of all religions and ethnicities uh, and nationalities to fight Israel's discriminatory system. What happened, and even though I stress that this was not a religious issue and so many Jews support Palestinian liberation, um, some the Jewish organizations in the area got wind of the fact that I was invited to speak and immediately launched an attack against the school for inviting me to speak, saying I made their students feel unsafe, accusing me of being anti-Semitic. And the school system just uh, unfortunately kind of uh, capitulated and issued statements, uh, you know, apologizing for, yeah. for having me there. And the media covered it kind of terribly, uh, almost in, insinuating that I had engaged in anti-Semitic rhetoric. And when it is very clear that campaigning for Palestinian rights, talking about Palestinian human rights is not anti-Semitic. I am a, a strong uh, opponent of any kind of of anti-Semitism, but we must distinguish and not conflate the two. Jewish Voice for Peace of Detroit chapter was very strong in coming out with a statement um, decrying these organizations and also condemning the school for capitulating and saying that these bogus attacks should not be tolerated and we should all be uniting and talking more about Palestinian and joining hands for Palestinian liberation. And that statement was signed by dozens and dozens of rabbis and priests and even a couple of bishops and over a thousand community activists. Uh, but the media didn't cover that, of course. Um, and this does happen, as you said, around the country when people try to speak up for Palestinian rights. But I don't want people to let that uh, stop them because that's exactly what it's intended to do. It's intended to create a chilling effect and stop people from speaking up. So we actually have to be very loud about calling this out. And there are resources and people that will support you in, in calling it out, including Palestine Legal, which works on the legal end of, of advocates for Palestinian human rights who are targeted for the work that they do. So don't let these, these bogus um, accusations of anti-Semitism stop you from speaking out. It's a moral obligation for us to keep speaking out. Yeah, and I guess I'll take the opportunity to identify myself as a member of Jewish Voice for Peace. Um, and we're talking now about uh, collaborating with other organizations of all sorts to um, speak more, um, more powerfully and more often about what's going on in Palestine and educate um, our community. So... Um, People are welcome to uh, write to me or contact me. I'm not the leader of JVP here, but um, I can share it with the other members and um, see what we can do on a more regular basis. Well, Hueda, um, thank you so much for joining us again and for your work. Hueda Araf is a Palestinian-American attorney, human rights activist. She has been involved in a number of legal and grassroots initiatives for Palestinian rights. She um, was on the ship that went to Gaza with uh, supplies and um, was attacked. Um, again, appreciate your work and appreciate you. Thank you, Hueda, for joining, joining us again. Thank you. Appreciate you so much, Asti. Thank you. Bye-bye, and um, thanks to Jade and to uh, Summer. Um, appreciate your work, too. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Stay tuned for the funny boys. Bye-bye.